and it's live. And how you doing? I am good, man. How are you? I'm very good. Are you excited to record this first podcast? The trailer was exciting, and this is the first official. We did we, we did have a run through and decided, damn, man, we should probably try and prepare more. <laughs> we did, we did. Um, you were a little bit hungover yesterday, if I recall correctly. Oh my god, yeah, the, the sharpness of thought wasn't quite there, so we, we decided a redo both because of, of me and, and because of just preparation is probably in order. But go on, tell us, why are we here, Jacob? Okay, so welcome everybody to this first episode of The Morality of Everyday Things. On this podcast, we will consider issues or questions that touch our everyday lives, such as, is it okay to punch a Nazi? Um, because it's it's something, something we encounter you... every day. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say, you're often, <laughs> often facing the issue, should I punch this Nazi? Yeah. Uh, or in today's episode, should billionaires exist? Uh, and what we'll do is we'll apply the works of moral philosophy and economic theory to these questions and kind of get at the issues that are at the heart of why, why we care about these things. What I would say is in the show, we're here to debate the issues from a theoretical perspective. We might occasionally talk about practical applications for fun, but if you want to listen to a, a, a podcast about public policy, you know, this isn't the pod for you. Uh, this is about the theory. And I think without further ado, let's, uh, let's dive right into this. So today's cool. question, should billionaires exist? Cool. So I think... We, we've decided to structure this in, 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 in future episodes in a way where the first thing we're going to do is say, what does this question really mean? Because I think one of the, one of the main learnings that I had um, in studying philosophy at uni was that oftentimes it is important to be very precise about the wording of the question to understand what it does really mean. And when you start answering uh, everyday questions, you start to realize that there's a lot of nuance and context to that that does actually mean that you might be asking something totally different to what you realize. So when we say, should billionaires exist, that, that sounds clear, but really, I think morally, it implicitly runs a lot deeper, right? Because as, as one of our colleagues pointed out when we mentioned this question, uh, billionaires exist in Zimbabwe. Um, <laughs> but, but clearly, clearly this doesn't take issue with them. They also exist in far more Germany. You know, it, it's not True. the nominal number of billionaires. Having, having a, a billion Vietnamese dong is not the same as a billion American dollars. Absolutely. And I think also, you know, people fairly point out, if everyone were billionaires, i.e. everyone could live super lavish lives, then it wouldn't really be a question worth asking, right? Or, or most people feel like it wouldn't be a question that has got the attention that it has. So it's not about the nominal amount. It's actually, specifically in the modern Western context, it's something to do about the, the inequality and relative disparity and, and the symbolism of a billion in the modern context as, as to just how much that is and, and what that kind of means in the, in the modern psyche. So I think to, to clarify that, there are two key issues here. One is that objectively, a billion dollars is an extraordinary amount of wealth to be concentrated in a, in a single person. Um, and then the second thing is that there are simultaneously people living in literal poverty. So I think when, when politicians say, some, say things like billionaires shouldn't exist, I don't think they're saying that we should just sequester every dollar after 999 million or 999,000, or that it should be burned. It's that it should be redistributed implicitly, right? So that, that's clearly what they're kind of pointing at. I think one of the things that people struggle with is the, the conceptualizing a billion. I think psychologically people are really bad at assessing the value of things. So how much money is a billion dollars? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting, interesting question. So to put it into context, 
there's a there's a movement of people who who basically try and um, retire as early as possible, and they have some great blogs and, and sources and things. I think one's called Mr. Money Mustache or something like that. And basically, there's there's a rule that they live by, which is that if you take out roughly four percent of your savings, you should be able to to maintain that ad infinitum. I.e., four percent is a relatively realistic rate of return that you can live off your uh, assets saved, right? So let's just think about a billion dollars for a second. If you have one billion saved or in some form of assets and they're returning that kind of minimum or you can liquidate that minimum of 4% a year, that actually equates to 40 million a year. That's 40 million a year, yeah. Yeah, so that's over 100,000 a day, right? It's about 110,000 a day. So that's roughly four times the average salary that you're earning in interest per day, which you know we can we can argue is an amount of money that's actually difficult to consume. So that's an interesting question. You, you say consume, right? Because I think it's easy to fall into the trap of saying, okay, hundred thousand a day, I could find ways of spending that, you know, buy some super yachts, whatever. But when you think about sort of consuming wealth, you know, uh, we're not talking about just buying a house, in which case you've converted cash to a different form of asset. You're talking about literally like how do you how do you run that wealth out how do you how do you sort of burn it um, yeah and that's that's a challenge how how would you spend a hundred thousand dollars a day in a way uh, that doesn't I mean, grow it exactly i mean so like you say buying a house doesn't do it even to some extent buying a car that depreciates rather than appreciates but you still own a car uh, i mean you'd have to buy even if you bought a first class ticket every day and ate caviar and whatever like you would struggle to really get through that money every day. So that capital would just continue accruing at a rate that you couldn't even mitigate. So, so the then, point here is that it is, it's a, it's a lot of money. Um, yeah. I do have a way that you could burn it though. Yeah, go on Jake, tell me about it. <laughs> you start with a billion dollars and you buy a football club. Yeah, yeah, probably Charlton FC. They're, uh, they're, they're a good acquisition target. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would do the job. Yeah, so, so then kind of taking this all together, when we ask the question, or when we say, sorry, what does this question really mean? Um, I think that, you know, perhaps there's a, a couple of useful rephrasings. So a more useful rephrasing might be, can we justify extreme concentrations of wealth to the extent that people literally cannot spend their money whilst simultaneously some members of society live in relative or even absolute poverty? Um, and then that kind of question itself touches on one of the, the, the biggest questions in political philosophy, which is what justifies the distribution of goods within our society? What, what makes the way that we distribute the things that we have fair? And why is it that some people intuitively so strongly reject the idea that the existence of billionaires is fair? And why is it that some people think it would be wrong to take from them? So essentially what we've done is distill the admittedly clickbaity question of should billionaires exist into a much sort of richer question of political philosophy. What justifies the distribution of goods within our society? Why does the existence of billionaires intuitively seem unfair to some people, but fair to others? Yeah. Okay, well, um, let's continue on that basis and dive into the next part of this podcast, which will be providing some real world economic context to the issue. So to begin, why is this issue a talking point? Why, why do people care about this uh, today? Well. I suppose it's worth taking a step back and saying people have obviously been aware of the issue of inequality for a very long time. Thomas Piketty, famous French economist, wrote 
a rare economic blockbuster in 2013 uh, called Capital in the 21st Century. In that book, he analyzed economic data over the past uh, X many decades and identified that the returns to capital are greater than the returns to labor. What that means to say is that people who sell their time, who work, their earnings grow at a lesser rate than people who just earn assets like, you know, landlords who are able to rent property or people who own companies probably more relevantly and this trend was getting worse and worse over time so if piketty's law holds you've got this trend where inequality is bad already and it's only going to get worse now this became a real talking point last year in october 2019 when bernie sanders the democratic nominee attacked billionaires directly in a speech he made uh, and here's a very short quote from Bernie that sort of really makes the point. When you have half a million Americans sleeping out on the street today, when you have 87 million people uninsured or underinsured, when you have hundreds of thousands of kids who cannot afford to go to college and millions struggling with the oppressive burden of student debt, and then you also have three people owning more wealth than the bottom half of American society combined, that is a moral and economic outrage. So that's the quote from Bernie Sanders, uh, yeah. and he really kind of sparked off the issue here. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting as well that he kind of he touches on that point that there's there's kind of two things to consider here, right? There's there's what's right, which is kind of the, the realm of the moral, um, and there's what's practical, uh, which is the realm of the economic, right? Um, and you know, you'd hope you'd hope that what's right and what's practical pretty heavily overlaps, but I think it's 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 an interesting interesting point that he makes that this is kind of wrong on two counts, right? Agreed. I have some quick facts for us here. The world's 26 richest people own as much as the world's poorest 50%. This is from a study that Oxfam did in 2019, uh, which also identified a trend that the wealthiest billionaires were only getting wealthier. The three wealthiest in order, the three that um, Sanders was referring to, were uh, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett. There are 2,604 billionaires in the world as a whole, and they control $8.5 trillion worth of assets. Bearing in mind that the world, like the world as a whole, is only worth supposedly $360 trillion in global wealth. Uh, that's uh, a non-negligible uh, part controlled by, by billionaires. I don't know if you know the stat, but of that $360 trillion, a significant portion is going to be owned by companies and countries, mm. right? Exactly. Um, so that $8 trillion of the proportion that's individually um, that's private assets is, is going to be huge, you know. Like, like Bernie says, in the context of the US, those top three own as much as the bottom 50. Yeah, absolutely. Other quick facts, 88% of those billionaires are male and nearly half of them inherited or partially inherited their wealth. Fair. That's, that sucks. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's a, that, that doesn't sound fair. Um, cool. And then I think that, that's some really interesting pre-COVID context, right? Exactly. Now, post-COVID, this could become an even bigger question because, well, well, for a number of reasons, but particularly these two. One, there's the issue of key workers. Uh, uh, and this is, this is an interesting new concept that's come about because in a world in which it's not physically sort of healthy or safe for people to work, there are some people whose jobs are so essential that we deem them key workers that we say, regardless of the context, you need to do your jobs in order for society to function. And yet, almost universally across the board, we also acknowledge that they're not paid fairly. And yet at the same time, you have billionaires in society. Another point to make around COVID is the whole burden of debt, 
which is going to take years and years to repay. And again, in a context of a world in which redistribution from billionaires could provide an economic solution to that, it makes this question more and more relevant today than ever before. I agree. That makes a lot of sense. So that's that's some good real world kind of economic context explains you know what billionaires billionaires are and why uh, why it's something that people have been talking about. Now some philosophical context that's going to help equip us with a few frameworks uh, that are useful to then assess the the morality of this situation. So I think the three that are are most relevant or are most interesting to this are going to be uh, utilitarianism, looking at Rawls's theory of justice as fairness, and then looking at kind of a libertarian uh, perspective through the eyes of famous philosopher Robert Nozick. Let's start with utilitarianism. Um, I think actually, before going through them all, I think it's worth pointing out frameworks. I don't think the point of any framework is to necessarily be 100% right. I think colloquially, we, we accept that like usually the answer is somewhere in the middle. But, you know, even if they're not perfectly right, most frameworks can still be useful. Uh, so let's let's start with utilitarianism. Um, for those who aren't familiar, I think this can really simply be understood as maximize happiness, minimize pain. And you're just kind of doing a summation of that across all people in society. Um, it was originally promoted by Jeremy Bentham. I think he's kind of recognized as the creator, famous UCL alumni alongside Mr. Jacob Wedderburn Day. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, and interesting fact, literally had his body embalmed so that it could be wheeled out for the annual utilitarian conference meetup. Little, <laughs> you know, getting a little ahead of himself that he involved himself prepared for that. But yeah, he, I think he chills somewhere in a bar in UCL. He, he, he does. They sometimes, he's stuffed and lives in the cloisters, I think, to be fair. If I ever become as notable as him, I don't think that's my, <laughs> my plan. <but. laughs> you're not going to let us, you're not going to let us taxidermize you? Yeah, weirdo. Um, and also famous, famous proponent, John Stuart Mill, who kind of took it and expounded on it. I think more people probably identify with his understanding of it. But, you know, we're just trying to keep a simple perspective here. So basically, maximize happiness, minimize pain, add that up across society. Um, I think most people will be familiar with their theory through, through the trolley problem question, which is just that if you have a trolley or train going down a track and it can either go to the left or the right, to the left is one person, to the right is 10 people, what do you do, right? Um, I think most people intuitively say, well, you go to the left to kill the one person rather than to kill 10 people on the right. And that's a very intuitive and early answer to that. Okay, well, it seems intuitively we're trying to minimize that pain of death, right? Mm -hmm. You then go on to, you build that problem to then kind of, you know, maybe poke holes or identify other issues. But as an overarching thing, that kind of gives you an idea. Next. We'll look at the uh, political theorist John Rawls, my man. Um, <laughs> he's a pretty cool dude. And then and basically he, he wrote an essay on this topic and basically he argued through the through means of an interesting thought experiment, he argued how would we construct a just and fair society? He basically talks about this idea of an original position or, or a veil of ignorance, right? So I think the easiest way to construct this or one that I've heard that I like is Imagine if, you know, a hundred of us are organizing a society um, and we send all of our lawyers to meet at a conference to discuss this, right? The only problem is on the way there, the lawyers all lose their briefcases. Uh, they were flying Ryanair and they got put in the hold. And <laughs> it was a whole thing. Other uh, airlines are available. <laughs> so they so they actually lose all their files. They, they lose all their files explaining the circumstances of the case. 
uh, or, or rather, sorry, the details of who you are. Details such as your age, your ethnicity, your race, uh, what talents you have. And they're coming together to basically argue how are we going to distribute goods, right? Um, the idea is that if they came together and did this, it would remove biases. So for example, if my lawyer was going there and knew that I was a white man who stood to inherit a lot of wealth, he may then argue that we should be in a white supremacist, uh, paternalistic society with no redistribution of wealth, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If he wasn't aware of any of this, then actually, you know, we've removed all of these morally arbitrary factors, he would have to argue a very different case, right? Um, and basically, I mean, it's, it's a long book, but he comes, to the, he comes to the conclusion that there would be three key principles, which is that first and foremost, there would be um, a concept of liberty. So that the first principle is the principle of liberty. And that is that each person has an equal claim to a fully adequate scheme of equal basic rights and liberties. Uh, so basically, you're, you're guaranteed your freedom of speech and you know basic property rights and things like that. The second principle would be that any any special rights would be attached to offices and positions that are equally available to everyone in society. He actually says that there should be equal opportunity to those positions. And then the most interesting, to, I think the, the simplest to what we're discussing now, is the difference principle. And his idea of the difference principle is that essentially any inequality in society that exists should work to the advantage of the worst off in society. Basically, the argument is, if you don't know where you're going to be in society, and you have to be extremely risk averse because it's your entire life that you're talking about, then you have to consider the situation of the worst off. And so he basically says, society is only as good as how it elevates the worst off. Um, and again, to clarify, some people would kind of assume that from this sort of experiment, the outcome is that, oh, everyone should be super equal that it may be the case that it should be relatively equal, but it's not necessarily the case that everything should be totally equal. So for example, if living in a capitalist society means that yeah, there's more productivity, so the worst off can actually achieve a better standard of living than communist states of the 60s, then, then that actually would be more just in his eyes. Uh, so it's about improving the, the lot of the worst off. And then finally, Jake, those are those are both consequentialist and outcome-based theories. Do you want to talk to us a bit about another one that's not consequentialist? Yeah, let's have a quick look at libertarianism. I guess the main proponent here is a guy called Robert Nozick, and mm -hmm. his theory is that the justice of a distribution isn't determined by the outcome, but the process by which we got there, how we got there. Importantly, the kind of libertarian axioms are that uh, I own my own body, my traits, and the labor thereof. If I have come to rightfully own something, it is mine and it's wrong to deprive me of it. So Nozick has like three principles here. Uh, the first is fairness in acquisition, uh, which basically says that if you come across a natural resource that's presently unowned and you mix your labor with it, i.e. I'm walking through the woods, I discover a stick, I sharpen it into a spear, thereby I come to fairly acquire the spear. The second is the principle of fair transfer, which says that if you meet me and you're willing to sort of trade my spear for money or fruit or uh, whatever it is that we might want to trade in this forest society, then that's fair, as long as it's a completely voluntary transfer arrangement. The third is the principle of rectification, which is less important. It basically just says, 
if you were to steal my sphere instead of voluntarily transfer it, there should be some system by which we can rectify that error and I can get my spear back. And there's an interesting thought experiment in libertarianism, which Nozick proposed, which uh, at the time he used the example of uh, Wilt Chamberlain, famous basketball player. To modernize that, we could give the context of uh, a successful YouTuber or, or podcast, um, maybe maybe this podcast for the sake of argument. So, Oh my God. So uh, the thought experiment goes, if you're, you know, if, if you're arguing with Nozick uh, and he says, okay, tell you what, you define a perfectly uh, equal society, one that you think is just in distribution. And let's say for the sake of argument, you say, cool, everyone has exactly the same thing. It doesn't really matter what you say. All that matters is it's equal to you. We call that D. Now, Nozick says, what about a situation where the morality of everyday things is a really popular podcast and uh, not just one or two people listen to it, as will probably happen, but billions of people tune in to listen to it and they each donate a pound because they like listening to it so much and they want us to keep making more episodes. And we end up with a new state of affairs in which everyone is one pound worse off apart from us, who uh, we're, we're both now billionaires because we've received all these donations. Now Nozick says because life that was a <laughs> life is good, and Nozick says that because that was a voluntary transfer and everyone has parted with their wealth willingly, and we've received it voluntarily in exchange for uh, our services, that that's also a completely fair distribution. So the fact that there are billionaires in this libertarian society is completely justified because the conditions were met. I mean, there's definitely an intuitive appeal to that, right? Like, what's mine is mine. Um, it's just, I suppose it's a question of what are the limits to what's mine is mine and what makes mine, mine. <laughs> let's now apply these theories to the actual argument in question. Uh, yeah, let's so, weigh some stuff up. Exactly. So the original question was, should billionaires exist? We've somewhat refined that in the original definition to say, what justifies the distribution of goods within our society? And, and, and sort of let's really tap into like, why, why does it seem fair or unfair? Uh, so let's start with the question, why might it be wrong to take wealth from billionaires? Cool. Okay. So I think from the outcomes-based approach, uh, approaches that would be utilitarianism and, and a kind of Rawlsian justice as fairness perspective, there can be two ways that that's possible, right? Uh, for the utilitarians, it could be that somehow the billionaires having that wealth is actually beneficial to society in aggregate. So actually it... it, it on mass makes people happier than if you took that wealth away. Um, and from the Rawlsian perspective, it's it's similar, but instead of it being on mass, it's that it's beneficial to the worst off in society. What you're saying is that capitalism in aggregate makes people happy enough that billionaires are justified because otherwise you'd be messing with the system? Something to that effect, yeah. So so basically, uh, you could argue from a utilitarian perspective, you know, it, it promotes certain ideals and, and that people approve of and like billionaires and would be annoyed to see those ideals undermined. That's a really interesting point because in practice, I think that's true. Uh, so after Sanders made his speech, they conducted a poll of American sentiment towards billionaires and surprisingly, well, I say surprisingly, that's my own bias coming in. Surprisingly, 82% of Americans said they approve of the existence of billionaires and they buy into that aspirational argument that being able to become a billionaire promotes, it, it gives all the right incentives for risk-taking and entrepreneurialism and creating jobs and, and all these things. And the economist, Greg Mankiw, that's certainly his argument in favor of why billionaires exist. 
Yeah, well, I don't like using Mankiw in a utilitarian argument because his undergraduate macroeconomics textbook caused me a lot of pain. <laughs> Good memories. But, yeah, and, and so it, it, it's not just that people enjoy those ideals, so it would annoy people who approve of it, but also that those ideals in the mid to long term help society maximize utility. So it's that kind of capitalism outperforms socialism, so uh, it's okay that it's a bit unequal because in the midterm, the productivity offsets that. Um, and that, abo- that applies both to summing the total across society and potentially also to the worst off in society, the Rawlsian argument. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be remiss at this point uh, uh, to ignore the point about philanthropy as well. When, when Sanders first raised this argument, Bill Gates was interviewed by Forbes about what does he think about the existence of billionaires. Perhaps unsurprisingly, he says uh, he, he thinks billionaires are a good thing. <laughs> and um, what? Uh, Gates Gates was of the opinion that if you tried to abolish billionaires, you'd lose more than you'd gain, and that he sees philanthropy, uh, for example, the work of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He sees that as a vital force for good in the world. Um, and I think his exact argument is that it would be more inefficient for, say, a government to conduct philanthropic efforts than for private institutions or charities to conduct them in the way that they do. I'm I'm gonna put it out there, I'm not buying it, Bill. Why not? (laughs) Um, I think just fundamentally, it opens a whole other kind of can of questions, right? Like, so first of all, can of worms, whatever. First of all, you know, how, how philanthropic is enough? Most Philanthropy, uh, most billionaires, you know, are not philanthropic on the scale that Bill Gates is. Um, and actually, I suppose, again, on that first point of how philanthropic is enough, if you have 50 billion and you donate 25 billion to charity, you still have 25 billion, right? Mm. So, as far as I'm concerned, from, from the, the basis of this argument, actually, the position hasn't really much changed. You, you still have an absurd concentration of wealth. I think there's a question of accountability here as well, right? Like, yeah, who, yeah. who's to hold you accountable for your philanthropy? The, the thing, yeah, at least governments are, are accountable, right? Even, I mean, it's a, it's a big thing to say that, you know, Bill Gates is more efficient. Um, you know, how do we benchmark that? How do we test that? If it's not true, is he suddenly immoral? If someone tries to be a philanthropist and they're bad at it, are they bad people? But also, at least governments are accountable to the people. Um, and I suppose... One final thing that's worth mentioning on this point, uh, why it might be wrong to take wealth from billionaires, is that there are practical challenges of implementing that. And you could argue that if the cost of any scheme that was designed to redistribute wealth or or, or prevent billionaires from existing, if that costs more than the potential benefits that you might glean from such a system, then the utilitarian argument still stands. I suppose that's actually the kind of argument that Gates is making himself. Potentially. Well, I, I think this actually this is this is kind of bureaucratic point, but it's true. I, I saw an interesting article about how difficult a time Forbes had doing their their rich list. Right. It, it's not to be fair. It's not a trivial task for the government to try and track people's wealth. Right. Mm. Um, and and in reality, people's wealth. It's not you know money just sitting in a bank account. It's assets that are constantly moving in value every day. What happens if someone's kind of fluctuating between that point if we set an arbitrary point from which we measure it? I, I mean, it could well be that, yeah, the implementation isn't worth it. I mean, I suppose the counterpoint to that is as long as you tax high enough, that's not true. Yeah. So 
I think this segues neatly into the libertarian argument. And I think perhaps the libertarian argument is the strongest uh, defense of billionaires, which is to say, who, what, what gives you the right to take someone else's rightful property? Even if they yeah. have a lot and others have too little, does the principle of meritocracy not apply here? If, if a billionaire has sort of fairly earned their wealth within, they've played yeah. by the rules of the capitalist system, what's, what's to say that anyone has a right to deprive them of that wealth that they've earned? Yeah i.e. they morally deserve it right and i think moral dessert is something mm, tasty uh, moral dessert <laughs> is a <laughs> or the, the approach to moral dessert is a really important distinction between roles and uh and nozick that we'll kind of come to also sorry we didn't mention earlier nozick's work was written as a direct response to rules work so there's you know these parallels are, are mm. not just coincidental but um yeah to give to give kind of an idea of this we talked about utilitarianism we talked about Rawls's theory of justice Here's a little thought experiment that kind of makes clear this point of what's mine is mine, okay? Say I have a job, I'm a keen cyclist on the weekends, right? So I save up and I buy myself a decent bike and I like to ride it on the, you know, on the hills around my house, uh, you know, once or twice a month. I'm, I'm a keen cyclist, but you know, I'm, I'm kind of busy. Uh, so I sit in my garage. Yeah, not that keen. Yeah, call me, call me a, you know, aspirational hobby cyclist. Uh, so it sits in my garage most of the time, right? If one of my neighbors really needed a bike to commute, say his car broke down, he couldn't afford to repair it, and he needed a bike to commute, right? You could use a utilitarian or, or Rawlsian argument to argue that they have the right to take my bike because they would derive more utility from it or in our little distribution, Rawls isn't really designed for like micro examples like this, but you know, in our distribution, he's uh, the worst off and it's to the benefit of the worst off or a maximized utility to let him have my bike and it doesn't deprive you of much utility either in this example right no exactly it doesn't it doesn't cost me very much but i think most people immediately have a strong aversion to this right like the the the, the fact that i have certain inalienable property rights is an important part of justice i think most people would say that what's rightfully mine is rightfully mine yeah and i think that's where libertarianism really it's quite deep-seated in society um, and I think that's probably the most intuitive reason that people feel it would be unfair to take wealth from billionaires is because there's that sense of property rights and the sense that they're yeah. entitled to what they've earned. Yeah, even even if it's not the most efficient or effective use of those goods, it's their goods. Like, you know, if you, you could repurpose my bank account to something more useful that doesn't give you the right <laughs> to do it, right? But now, I think this is the interesting part to kind of flip it on this libertarian argument. So we can kind of, we can now consider why might it be right to take wealth from billionaires, okay? So we discussed that libertarian argument and we've, we've said like, okay, it would be wrong to take it because they if they morally deserve it. What if using Nozick's own conditions, we can just never be satisfied that someone has rightfully acquired as much as a billion. And I think I think this is a really key point. I think it might be justified because I think you can almost always argue that Nozick's conditions are rarely satisfied in the modern world for, for a few reasons. Number one, justice and acquisition, it's, it's all fine in this sort of ideal forest scenario where the natural world is kind of pristine and people just go around acquiring it as they mix their labor with it. In practice today, there's so much history. There's so many examples of, you know, slavery and theft and violence and ways in which things haven't been acquired fairly, and then ways in which things have been passed down through inheritance. 
that mm. make you question, you know, was that first condition ever satisfied? The second yep. condition is perhaps even more relevant, which is about voluntary transfer. And I, I expect most people would like to believe in a market economy, most transactions are conducted voluntarily and people sort of buy and sell as befits them. But actually, in practice, there is such a thing as economic slavery, right? If you ask most people working the midnight shift at McDonald's whether they, you know, chose to be in that position, you know, I, I don't know whether they would say that they were, you know, fairly freely choosing or whether it was the only option available to them. If, if I mean, by that basis, why do we set minimum wages? Exactly. And I think all of that comes together to make the point that Nozick's conditions are all great in theory but it's really difficult to satisfy them in practice. So actually libertarianism might provide us with that justification that you can take wealth from billionaires because likely it wasn't acquired fairly or, or, or transferred justly. And if that sounds too theoretical, I suppose what's important to say here is that it's really difficult to separate a billionaire from the context of the society in which they work and function. So basically, you know, you, you're entitled to what you morally deserve, but no billionaire morally deserves their billions. And why not? Either because they didn't acquire it fairly, um, or, you know, I, I think another line that we haven't yet acknowledged is, is kind of poking holes in the, in the conception of meritocracy, right? Mm, let's do I that. Think, yeah, I think, I think it, it does feel, you know, in, in the way that Rawls does in his original position, a lot of the stuff that we consider meritocratic do kind of feel morally arbitrary, right? I mean, if, if we live in a truly meritocratic society, then you, should, you, you shouldn't feel bad to tell anyone who grew up as a disadvantaged ethnic minority in a poor household um, who's working 80 hours a week, but the reason they're poor is because they're not working hard enough or not good enough. But obviously, I hope most of us would acknowledge that that's, you know, you're not justified in holding that position, that there are certain disadvantages that are outside of their control that have held them down. Um, and, you know, conversely, there are loads of people who, you know, as you've said, actually, the majority have inherited tons of wealth and actually not done anything to earn it. Uh, I mean, if, if, if we truly live in a meritocratic society, then how is it that the returns to owning things is higher than the returns to actually doing something? And I think it's interesting. It's, it's not even the question of whether we do live in a meritocratic society now. It's the fact that people uphold meritocracy as a kind of principle of how society should function. And I'm, I'm not even sure that I agree with that necessarily, because I think there's so much that, if you look at merit, meritocracy, one thing to consider is that talent is largely genetically or socially inherited. And yeah. we consider that inheriting wealth is not meritocratic. Then why would inheriting talents, the, the talents that produce wealth, why would that be any different? Even if effort isn't predetermined, if it's driven at least by, in part, by forces outside your control, then then it sort of undermines the very essence of meritocracy. And I, yeah, I think we, I, we, we want to uphold meritocracy as a principle because there does seem to be something intuitively fair about, you know, the effort you put in uh, is what you get out. But I just don't think it works in practice. Uh, I think the other thing in, mer in meritocracy, aside from, you know, how arbitrary the in inheritance is, is, uh, is luck, right? Mm. So it, it seems it seems silly to say that you know, the person who does everything right and then COVID happens and kills their business doesn't deserve to be a billionaire. Whereas the person who does everything right and, you know, it doesn't happen to be that COVID strikes their business, you know, they did it in whatever period. If COVID even benefits their business. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it seems silly to say that on that basis, 
the basis of a global pandemic that was unpredictable, one person does doesn't deserve to be a billionaire. So there's too many factors outside of our control. I think I think Rawls basically was a big proponent of this. That's that's kind of the reason that he tries to exclude such factors from his original position. So again, going back to that consequential perspective, why might it be right to take wealth from billionaires? I think this this again is why we have chosen that symbolic signpost of one billion and why we clarified at the beginning of this podcast just how much one billion is. I think from both a utilitarian and a Rawlsian perspective, uh, and, and, and from a communal uh, societal perspective, the reason that this movement has, has so much momentum is because a billion is just intuitively such an excess of wealth that in modern society, it's just trivially the case that the benefit to the worst off and, and the middle class, you know, utilitarian or Rawlsian, uh, would obviously outweigh the pain of billionaires um, or you know, arguably outweigh erosion to the principles and ideals that benefit society. So capitalism, and, you know, I, don't, I don't think capitalism is gonna fail if the, the richest in the world, you know, we, we tax effectively enough that the richest in the world only have you know, in the hundreds of millions. I think that's true. Uh, and I think if you take that utilitarian approach one step further, by reducing inequality, it promotes other principles that we do care about that bring about more social good. So improve social mobility, avoiding the entrenchment of political power, uh, reduce crime, reduce drug abuse. Um, mm. And I mentioned political power. I suppose it's worth saying that, yes, there's the sort of financial aspect of having a billion pounds or dollars or whatever, not Zimbabwean dollars. but it's also the fact that you have so much political influence when you have that kind of wealth in our society money money is power and i suppose yeah. you can always argue that companies would have that instead of individuals if you broke up sort of people's personal wealth holdings and that's definitely another debate altogether but political influence is also a really important part of that and it definitely seems to be in line with the sort of rawlsian and utilitarian schools of thought to say if you break that up and redistribute it that's beneficial to the lowest members of society in Rawls's case, or to the greater good in the case of utilitarianism. Yeah. Okay. So, so I think that's kind of a summary of you know why it'd be wrong and why it'd be right. Let's do a little. Let's do a little balancing. Yeah. What um, are our conclusions here? So I think I think we 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 probably <laughs> we probably jumped the gun a bit on the libertarian point and and made our conclusion quite clear while talking about why it might be right to take from billionaires from a libertarian perspective. Um, we just don't think that, I think it's fair to say that we both agree, that um, it doesn't seem to hold in theory. That, you know, it, 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 no, sorry, it's a nice theory, but it just doesn't seem to hold. You just can't have that kind of immaculate ownership and fair transfer in reality. Um, and that the kind of overall principle of meritocracy does seem a bit unfair. I mean, if, if the libertarian kind of axiom is, you know, the traits that constitute me are my property and mine to use. You know, we kind of disagree with that that axiom as a fair basis. Like, okay, but that's a lot of that is morally arbitrary. Like, you know, do you deserve more because you were born to be very intelligent or very strong? Uh, also, to clarify, traits which you know at different points in history are or aren't valued. You know, if you're born over seven foot now in the 21st century, you're disproportionately likely to be in an NBA and be a multi multimillionaire. If you're born over seven foot in the 1300s, you're probably in a freak show. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think I think that we kind of made our, our view clear on that. What's your? We've said that there's some kind of utilitarian and, and even kind of Rawlsian arguments that can go on both sides. Where do you think, on balance, 
the, the question of uh, should billionaires exist kind of, kind of ends up from their perspective. I feel like it lands on the anti-billionaire side because I think should billionaires exist? No, if the welfare of the worst citizens is worse than the welfare under any better distribution. I, I guess at this point I should say I'm a big fan of rules. I think as frameworks go, I really like the conclusions that he draws because I think it's such an elegant way, his thought experiment is such an elegant way of forcing you to remove your own personal biases and recognize that the lot of the worst off in society is a really, really important factor in assessing that society's justice. So on balance, yes, you can make the case that, you know, billionaires promote the sort of virtues of capitalism, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and therefore that's the best way to promote the welfare of the worst off and the greater good. I just think in practice, there's a stronger argument to be had on the other side to say that it's more convincing to uh, talk about redistribution being effective from a utilitarian or a Rawlsian point of view than it is to say that the system they exist in is, is better for everybody. Fair. I think that kind of summarises it then. Should, should billionaires exist? Probably not. And I do have one interesting kind of follow-on question then, Jake. So we're saying that actually redistributing the wealth of billionaires would, would help society. What if by helping society it just created more billionaires? Would it, would it then be permissible? And, and yeah, under what conditions would it be, what conditions would we agree that billionaires should exist? I suppose, I suppose the answer to that is if we lived in a society where everyone's base threshold was sufficiently high, that you've got to that point where the costs of further taxing billionaires actually outweighs the redistributive benefits, then maybe, then yeah, at that point, it's probably fair to say, cool, billionaires can exist. We're in a society that's only gonna create more of them, but everyone's base is, is satisfied. Yeah, and I guess the argument is just that, and, and again, the reason that this has movement, uh, this movement has momentum is just because it seems to a lot of people that intuitively we're not at that point, but some people are arguing that we are. And other people are arguing that it's not about uh, that kind of balancing redistributive benefits versus taking stuff away. It's a totally different argument about property rights. Cool, I think that's a good place to end it. We've kind of made our points pretty clear. Nice. What's coming up next week, Jacob? What's coming up next week? So in this first season, we're going to tackle a number of questions. Next week, we're going to look at the issue of, is it okay to punch a Nazi? <laughs> what did uh, what did Hitler say when he got hit in the face? What? I don't know. I did not see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll explore that question in much more detail next week. Uh, until then, Thank you for listening. Shout out to our parents and the two or three other people that may have tuned in to enjoy this. See you next week. Nice.